It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The House has voted to hold former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in criminal contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena issued by the committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. Meadows had been cooperating with the committee, turning over more than 9,000 pages of records, including texts and emails. But in an about-face, he refused to appear for a scheduled deposition or to turn over any more documents. Republican Representative Liz Cheney read aloud some of the texts sent to Meadows from his son and Fox News hosts during the riot. He's got to condemn this ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. The president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. Bob, how significant is the vote to hold Meadows in criminal contempt? It was a near party line vote. Well, it is a big deal because what we have here is a majority of the House of Representatives, albeit a democratically controlled House, found that one of their own needs to be indicted for lack of cooperation. What we have here is Mark Meadows, who is a former congressman from North Carolina, and who is, by the way, familiar with congressional oversight and who himself had argued for congressional oversight when he was a member of Congress during the Obama administration, but is refusing to testify before the House in connection with the January 6th committee. So the fact that the House committee voted to hold him in contempt and the full House later approved that really speaks to how central they believe Meadows is to their understanding of what happened on January 6th. Is the Justice Department likely to charge Meadows? Well, that's really the great question here. What we do know is that this is a giant headache, both politically 
and legally for Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is not a decision that he is likely happy to be faced with, but ultimately this will rest at his feet. It will be handled initially by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia, but these decisions, certainly something as significant as holding a former presidential chief of staff in contempt of Congress, that's a decision that's going to be made by Merrick Garland himself. So it's a difficult decision here because on the one hand, if you charge him for failing to comply with the subpoena, he does risk creating a precedent in which future House of Representatives, which could be controlled by the Republicans as early as next year, are in a situation where they could then seek to get testimony from current or former aides to the president. And that's something that Congress has and the Department of Justice has historically been fairly deferential to. They have allowed sitting and former chiefs of staff to invoke executive privilege with regard to the communications they have with the president. On the other hand, if he declines to pursue this case criminally, he is in some sense hamstringing the committee's ability to investigate fully the attack on January 6th. So it's a difficult decision for Merrick Garland. Since the Department of Justice is prosecuting Steve Bannon, does it follow that it should prosecute Meadows? I think this is a very different analysis from the analysis that the Department of Justice engaged in when it made a decision to indict Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. For starters, Bannon was not a White House official during the events surrounding the January 6th insurrection. So that's a significant fact. You have Mark Meadows, who not only was employed by the White House, but he was President Trump's chief of staff during the insurrection. He was intimately involved in providing information to the president, providing him advice and receiving communications from the president. It puts him in the eye of the storm, so to speak, but it also puts him in a position to claim executive privilege in a much stronger way than Steve Bannon can. So how does it cut? Because Meadows could say, well, I turned over as much as I could turn over. I cooperated with the committee, but now we've reached a point where I can't turn it over anymore and I can't discuss any of this. I mean, is it in his favor that he turned over 9,000 pages, or does it cut against him? Well, it does show some effort to cooperate with the committee, but he has not yet testified and answered questions about these issues before the committee. He's claiming that executive privilege prevents him from answering these questions, and he's refusing to appear to answer even basic questions that the committee says don't involve a claim of executive privilege. And the committee does point to a series of examples of areas of inquiry, which they say, even if executive privilege were to apply, which they dispute, it would certainly not come into play if Meadows were asked to talk about certain topics. For example, the committee is going to ask Meadows to talk about conversations he had with the chief of staff to the acting defense secretary during the January 6th insurrection. They want to ask him about tech messages he exchanged allegedly with the organizer of the January 6th rally on the ellipse that day that preceded the attack. They want to ask him about apparent efforts to encourage Republican lawmakers in certain states to send alternate slates of electors to Congress in an attempt to undo President Biden's win. And they also want to talk about claims of election fraud that Meadows allegedly forwarded to the Department of Justice for further investigations. The committee's position is, even if there is an executive privilege that attaches here to some of the areas of inquiry, they certainly don't apply to these topics, and therefore he needs to appear before the committee to answer these questions. 
The committee claims that Meadows waived executive privilege by turning over all the documents and by writing a book. And aren't his claims of privilege further weakened by the D.C. Court of Appeals ruling rejecting former President Trump's claim of executive privilege with regard to White House documents held at the National Archives? And that's basically resting on the fact that President Biden, who currently is the chief executive and has the right to invoke the privilege, has decided not to assert executive privilege over these records and communications and testimonies sought from former Trump administration officials in connection with the select committee's probe. So that question has been answered to some extent. But at the same time, there are some issues related to executive privilege which remain unresolved. And Mr. Meadows' lawyer, in a last-ditch effort to try to convince the committee not to refer Mr. Meadows over to the Department of Justice for criminal contempt charges, he has argued that Meadows is invoking the executive privilege argument in good faith. And in order to convict somebody of a criminal charge, they have to be acting in bad faith. It's not Mark Meadows' role or, frankly, his attorney's role, he argues, to determine whether or not that assertion of executive privilege is going to be upheld or not as long as he is arguing in good faith that executive privilege is being invoked by former President Trump. That is his defense, and that is why the committee is focusing on lots of areas where they're arguing executive privilege would never apply, even if it were to ultimately be upheld by the courts. But as you say, so far, the courts have viewed it unfavorably and narrowly construed executive privilege to say that it really belongs to the current occupant of the White House, and a former president cannot invoke a sweeping exercise of executive privilege as former President Trump is attempting to do here. It's less than two weeks now that Trump has to appeal that D.C. Circuit decision to the Supreme Court. So if the Supreme Court takes the case, we'll have to wait for that decision. If it doesn't take the case, then the D.C. Circuit's decision is the final word. Yeah, that's right. And then I think, as you say, to invoke executive privilege when that decision has essentially been final by the D.C. Circuit will be a much tougher hill to climb. Right now, it's still undecided because the Supreme Court may take the case and the Supreme Court may decide something different than the D.C. Circuit. So that's why Mark Meadows and his lawyers can continue to try to assert that privilege. And that's why the committee is trying to circumvent that argument by focusing on all the text messages and all the emails that they already have from Mr. Meadows and argue that these are issues and these are conversations and these are meetings that don't involve the president. And therefore, any claim of executive privilege here would not be appropriate. The committee is also pointing to a new book by Meadows called The Chief's Chief about his role in the White House. And the committee says that's evidence that his refusal to testify was untenable. How do you refuse to testify when you have a book out? Well, that does raise an interesting question, and it goes directly to that good faith defense that Mark Meadows is trying to raise. He's trying to claim that he is relying in good faith on the assertion of executive privilege by former President Trump. And if it is a good faith assertion, it is appropriate, because just remember that privileges do exist. The attorney-client privilege is something that people are most familiar with. Conversations between a client and an attorney, and an attorney and a client in connection with seeking legal advice is a valid reason not to answer questions in a courtroom or during a deposition. So 
So privileges are frequently raised in the course of committee hearings and in the course of litigation. It's not unusual, nor is it inappropriate. But in this case, the committee is suggesting that the executive privilege assertion rings hollow because Mr. Meadows is going out and speaking to other media outlets. He's promoting his book, and he's talking, they say, about the very same topics that he is now refusing to appear before the committee and testify about. Is it a good faith effort, even though he didn't appear before the committee and did not assert privilege on a question by question basis, as you know, you've said is the way this is normally done? Yeah, no, that is, that is exactly right. You don't get to simply say that because there's an executive privilege looming out there, or any privilege, frankly, out there, whether it's attorney-client privilege or any other potentially valid privilege, you simply can't use that as a blanket refusal to appear for testimony, whether it's in a deposition or before a committee or during a trial. You have to exercise that privilege on a question-by-question basis because certain questions would not fall within the privilege and others might. And in order for some court to ultimately determine whether or not the the privilege is being asserted appropriately, it has to be done on a question-by-question basis. And simply refusing to appear altogether on the basis that executive privilege may be implicated in some of the questioning is inappropriate. And that's, I think, the weakness in the position that Mark Meadows is taking. He really does have to show up, appear before that committee, and answer some questions that don't invoke executive privilege in order for him to argue that he is making a good faith effort to cooperate with this committee while at the same time honoring the invocation of executive privilege by former President Trump. What does recent history tell us about this? There is also a recent history where criminal contempt charges were referred over by the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice declined to pursue them. So it's certainly not automatic because this has been referred to the DOJ that there will be a criminal contempt charge brought against Mark Meadows. For example, in 2008, the department declined to bring charges against President George W. Bush's chief of staff, Joshua Bolton, and former White House counsel Harriet Myers, who resisted subpoenas concerning the controversial forced resignation of U.S. attorneys. In 2012, the department likewise declined to pursue a criminal contempt prosecution against Attorney General Eric Holder, who refused to turn over some documents that were related to the Fast and Furious scandal, which was a gun-running sting that had gone badly wrong. So there is precedent here where the executive branch takes an expansive view of executive privilege, and that's what really the Department of Justice has to be thinking about here, because it's not just the case of Mark Meadows that's at issue here. It's also a question of what kind of precedent they are setting, and what kind of precedent will then fall to future House of Representatives when they pursue subpoenas and perhaps criminal contempt charges against other current or former close aides of the president. Is this basically a show of force by the committee that's not going to get them the information they're looking for? Even if Mark Meadows is prosecuted and is convicted, that in and of itself will not get Congress the information it's seeking. To accomplish that, Congress would have to sue Meadows and have a judge hold him in civil contempt rather than criminal, then throw him in jail for refusing to cooperate with the committee, and then the judge might order him to provide testimony. A criminal prosecution is only going to serve as punishment. If he is charged and if he's ultimately convicted, he may spend some time in jail. But part of that process will not be to order him to testify before Congress. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter and English. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. It's the first effort by a government agency to hold individuals and organizations civilly responsible for the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Washington, D.C. is suing the far-right groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, over their role in the rioting to try to recover the millions of dollars D.C. spent in defending the Capitol. The D.C. Attorney General, Carl Racine, says they're trying to cause the groups as much financial pain as possible using the Ku Klux Klan Act. History will show that when these acts, like the Ku Klux Klan Act and other laws, were used against hate groups, what did they do? What did cowards do? They go running. They go hiding. They get decentralized. And frankly, they're less dangerous. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, is this lawsuit for real or more for show? In this sense, does D.C. think it's actually going to be able to recover damages, or is this just D.C. wanting to send a message? Well, I think it's it's certainly more for show. There's a serious question or issue with respect to the defendants in the civil lawsuit and any money and property and resources that they maintain that could be attached to satisfy a judgment against them. 
But I do think that there are likely some resources collectively that could make a difference. I mean, keep in mind that we have two organizations, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, that are defendants in this lawsuit, in addition to 31 members, individuals that are members of these organizations. And so collectively, I think there could be some significant substantial funds and property that could be attached to enforce a judgment. But I think equally important is the message that is being sent here by the D.C. Attorney General. And that is that if you engage in this type of conduct, then you face a risk, uh, in fact, a serious risk of bankruptcy, because ultimately that could be the end result. These organizations and individuals could be brought to their knees financially. And that's, that's not an insignificant action or message to send. It seems as if this lawsuit is taking information that the Justice Department Uh has unearthed in its January 6th investigations and sort of repurposing it. So what would a defense be to this? It's going to be difficult because uh, a couple of things. With respect to the, the individual defendants, I think all of them, but perhaps one, have actually been criminally charged for their individual roles that they assumed that they engaged in with respect to the insurrection that occurred on January 6th. And so they've been indicted. There have been criminal charges. That means that there's a basis. There's probable cause to believe that these individuals have committed a crime. And so the civil lawsuit is really piggybacking on top of that and using that information to support the civil action. And of course, as you know, the civil lawsuit, the standard of proof is substantially less. It's only by a preponderance of the evidence. So they're taking information that's been generated, collected in the criminal lawsuit, and they're going to be using that to satisfy a civil cause of action based on a much lower standard of proof. So I think it's going to make it much easier for the plaintiffs to prevail in the civil lawsuit. And if you look at the civil complaint, and and it's about an 84-page document, it is really loaded with photographs of the individual defendants named in the civil lawsuit, showing them engaged in violent combat with the D.C. police and the U.S. Capitol Police, showing them destroying property specifically by forceful entry, destruction of the U.S. Capitol. And so it's the old adage, I think, that actions speak louder than words. And these individuals are actually caught on tape engaging in this conduct. And I think it's going to be difficult to talk that away through mere words. This lawsuit follows a jury verdict against white nationalists in Virginia just last month. And I don't think that the timing of this is just coincidental. The civil suit against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers follows a $26 million verdict where the jury found against the white supremacists and other hate groups that were responsible for the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And so now there's a very compelling precedent here for this type of lawsuit. The New York Times has reported that members of the Proud Boys have been increasingly appearing at local events in small communities, town council and school board meetings, for example, to bring their brand of politics. Is this a change in strategy that might work? 
Well, it certainly could, and there's no question that these groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, have received a lot of support from former President Trump's base and kind of running to their defense. And so I think what's happening is they're just changing their strategy. I mean, this confrontation, combative strategy is what caught them in trouble with the Department of Justice and now with the D.C. Attorney General. And so now the strategy is, well, let's try to infiltrate school boards and city councils and have an influence at that level. And that's problematic, but it raises legitimate First Amendment issues. And certainly they have a right to uh, advance their ideology. And whether you agree with it or not, it's protected free speech. We've been learning a lot from the January 6th committee and the conclusion that some of the the members have drawn is that the White House played a more substantial role in trying to overturn the 2020 election than was previously known. But I haven't heard anything about prosecutions of some of the people. For example, Mark Meadows is, you know, that's a criminal contempt of Congress. Yeah, I think we have to we have to step back. The the, uh the January 6th committee, the bipartisan committee, I think is still in, in, in the fairly early stages of their investigation, even though, I mean, they've interviewed and taken de- depositions of, of dozens, perhaps maybe even hundreds of witnesses at this point, but they're still sifting through a lot of information, evidence that they have, uh, they've accumulated. But I do think it's telling when we start hearing on um, on national uh, news programs, members of the of the congressional committee making comments about violations of federal law. That, that that that's why they that's why it's important that these individuals that they've subpoenaed for deposition appear before the committee because they have. Uh, evidence, firsthand evidence that could support criminal violations, including obstruction of a congressional proceeding. And and so I think that's very telling that they're moving in that direction and and, and collecting evidence that could support a criminal prosecution of White House officials. I want to ask you a question about Mark Meadows. As you know, the House has voted to hold the former White House Chief of Staff Meadows in contempt of Congress after he stopped cooperating with the January 6th committee. So this is the second time the special committee has sought to punish a witness for defying a subpoena. The last witness who did so, Steve Bannon, was charged by the Justice Department and is facing trial in July. Is it likely that the Justice Department will also prosecute Meadows? Well, I think so, uh, again, because the the alleged reason for not appearing before the the congressional committee the January 6th committee uh, Meadows is claiming is because he has uh, an executive privilege, or he's claiming that's one one argument. The other is that it would violate his right against self-incrimination. But but both of those arguments are severely undermined by the fact that. Mark Meadows has already disclosed thousands of pages of documents to the to the committee, and he's also written a book. And in the book, he uh, discloses uh, information, personal information, what he observed, what happened on January sixth. So it appears to me that that and he's waived certainly his claim uh, 
of, of the Fifth Amendment privilege by the documents that he's disclosed in the book that that he's published, and uh, and so it's kind of hard to, to, to on the one hand disclose disclose this, but then say, well, I can't talk about it, because, again, I would be incriminating myself if I did. It's just a very inconsistent legal theory that they're advancing. And so, therefore, I don't think it's going to prevail, and I do think that there's a very high likelihood that he is going to be held in criminal contempt by the Department of Justice. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jimmy. That's former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garulay, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And please join us every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time for the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.